Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. I'm Mike Fenton-Stevens, and in this podcast, I ask my guests to tell me the five things from any time in their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule. My guest in this episode is the actor Dune McKegan. Dune has mostly worked in comedy through her, well, let's face it, fantastic career. She's been in many of the most iconic comedy shows of the last 30 years. Smack the Pony, The Day to Day, Brass Eye, Knowing Me, Knowing You with Alan Partridge, The Merry White House Experience, Toast of London, Nathan Barley, Plebs, a performance for which she was nominated for a BAFTA, Good Omens with David Tennant and Michael Sheen, and most recently, the brilliant sitcom Two Doors Down. On stage, Dune has appeared in Loot, The Government Inspector at the Young Vic, she was Feste in Twelfth Night at the National Theatre and was in Jumpy at the Royal Court. Recently, she got rave reviews for her performance in David Mamet's Bitter Wheat at the Garrick Theatre. And she came fourth in the singing contest, Comic Relief Does Fame Academy. So, you can see how lucky I am that Doom could spare the time to talk to me about the four things she loves and one thing she loathes. And here's what she chose. Dune, how lovely to see you and welcome to my time capsule. I'm very honoured to be here, Mr. Michael Fenton Stevens. <laughs> <laughs> the full name, oh, I'm honoured. <laughs> yes. Yes, it's quite a mouthful, isn't it? Did you join that with your, is that because that's part of your partner's name or is that because you're a posh boy from the country? Very well spotted. It is because I am joined up with my partner. Uh, I'm not a posh boy from You're no. posing as a posh boy from the country. Well, I've sort of got away with it for years. Anyway, lovely to see you. We are, we are actually looking at each other because we're on Zoom, which is... It's a real boon, isn't it? Zoom is a boon. For Dune, yes. Triple <laughs> Dunes. <laughs> <laughs> lovely. Okay, so we're going to talk about five little things from your life that you'd like to put into a time capsule that you, that you treasure. Well, four things that you treasure and one thing that you'd sort of be glad to get rid of, really, and just bury in the ground. 
So what's your first item? Well, Michael Fenton Stevens, my first item is the sea. Does it fit? It's an enormous time capsule. I wouldn't worry about it. I would put sort of all water or all bodies of water, but actually the sea, I've realised, is the thing that is closest to my soul in terms of bodies of water. Um, Yeah, I would put the sea in. I didn't sort of fall in love with the sea until I moved to Scotland when I was aged 11. And we lived in Fife on the East Coast and we lived across a field from Largo Bay, mm. which is a little a little bay on the east nuke of Fife. Very pretty. Very, <laughs> very sweet. Now, of course, full of kind of hideous holiday homes for the great and the good from Edinburgh. But what can you do? Beautiful places are full of holiday homes. Actually, that would be a good thing to put into the things that I hate. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, so my dad would get back from work and we would bowl down the farm track in his lovely old jag, listening to Dennis Roussos on one of those Betamax. Also, he had a secret Derek and Clive live cassette, which he hid from my mum in the glove box of the car. So, of course, that was my introduction to comedy, listening to, you know, the very, not the nice stuff, the super rude stuff, which was wonderful. So we would listen to illicit Derek and Clive driving down to Largo Bay with my dad. What, the really, really rude stuff? The lobsters. <laughs> we don't need to add any more. And um, I remember my mum saying, you know, they used to be so funny when they weren't rude. They, <laughs> they wore lovely suits and they didn't have to swear. She'd never listened to that tape. That would have sent her into some kind of, she probably would have had a heart attack. But dad found it utterly hilarious. I didn't quite get it, but I loved listening to just the words arse and, you know, all sorts of things. But... So there we were, listening to seminal comedy, drive down to Largo Bay, which was very beautiful and very empty, mm. and get in the sea. And, you know, it was brutal North Sea cold. But we did it, I would say, not all year round, probably until September, October. Well, that's still pretty cold, isn't it? Pretty cold. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that just started a love of cold water with me because I realised how much I love it. So I've just, I've just been in the sea this morning with my little cold water swimming group down at Rockinall Beach in Hastings, where I live. Mm-hmm. And it was just utterly, utterly beautiful. I mean, there's nothing more beautiful than getting into the sea in the sun. I mean, it's also fun. Yesterday it was very rough, so we got in and just screamed and danced around in the waves. But we still <laughs> felt great all day. That's the thing. It's sort of like a very, it's a real cheat for exercise because you feel amazing, but you've literally been in the water for 10 minutes. Yeah, I suppose actually your muscles really tense up, don't they? So it's like doing some sort of amazing workout. Maybe it is. I, I just feel like it's a bit of a cheat because you feel amazing, but you haven't had to do any sweating or being on a running machine. Um, and also it's very good if you're in any sort of bodily pain. I think, you know, they sitting in ice baths after you've run a marathon, it's meant to mend your muscles. And um, I recently had a car accident. Uh, everybody please wear seatbelts in the back of black cabs forevermore because I was in the back of a black cab doing my first job in five months, a voiceover, and I stupidly didn't have my belt on and he, he hit traffic lights at speed and I smashed into the card machine, the partition. Oh. I'm very lucky to only have a scar above my eyebrow. 
but my ribs are in agony. But apparently Barbara Windsor knocked all her teeth out in the same type of accident. So it's, you feel safe in the back of a cab. You just think, oh, I'm just in a nice, you know, sitting room. It's, your cabs don't go very fast. You know, 30 miles an hour is fast enough, isn't it? Yeah, the, but that's helped the pain. The cold water has really helped the excruciating rib pain. Like, um, so yeah, that's another great thing. So, so do you swim every day? Pretty much. Uh, try to swim first thing in the morning. Unless I get in first thing in the morning, I'm not that keen to go in later on. <laughs> I'm going to lose the will to... I think the morning swim is, is the thing. And um, now I live in Hastings. When I lived in London, it would be Tooting Lido or Brockwell Lido or the Serpentine. And I, I sort of... I did do a channel crossing with some paratroopers. So I have... I've swum the channel, but not the whole thing. I've swum in a, in a relay. Wow. And I had to train in cold water to be able to do that. And that definitely sealed my love of being able to swim in the cold. And because that was the part of it. It's not really the distance. It's the cold that absolutely is horrendous. <laughs> I like <laughs> staying in for 10 minutes. I don't really like staying in for, as it took us, between us, 16 and a half hours. So we swam maybe five hours each. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was horrendous. Well, 10 minutes to me sounds long enough, I have to say. Yeah, and it's getting to the point where I don't put my head in now because it's sort of ice cream headache kind of cold. <laughs> you know, that really horrible. And then after the, the channel, um, some of the South London Swim Club from Tootig decided that we would go to the Arctic and swim in the World Ice Swimming Championships. So I just thought, well, this sounds just too bonkers to miss. So we train all winter by going in all winter every day for less and less time, so that when you get to the Arctic, you, you're swimming in a 25-metre strip of water that's been, the ice has been cut out of it and piled onto the side, and they have to keep it moving with jets, and you're dead in that water after about five minutes. So you just swim 25 metres with a hat on, you know, in your swimming costume. And as you're swimming, you, you get slower and slower as hypothermia grips your body and you're pulled out the other end. The pain is excruciating, like you've been sort of smashed in by the hands and feet. But then you, it, it, it's just such an addictive feeling. I think that's the, you just never feel better. If, I think for nowadays, with all the mental health issues, and I know this guy, Wim Hof, has really jumped on the bandwagon and is all like ice baths and, you know, is making millions out of teaching people how to get into cold water. It's, but actually, mentally, mental health-wise, it somehow shocks you into the present and seems to sort of banish the cobweb of demons that might be, you know, the morning dreads, the fluttering around of anxieties. And it, it, it's just like a kind of really amazing wake-up call to life so all the people i know who do it all have chosen to live by the sea because they they find it addictive yeah and i suppose you can do it in in london i mean there are lidos in london sadly because of covid that you, you have to book and you you're sort of in lanes and you've only got certain finite amount of time to get in and out of the water but um you know people can still do it you know you can swim anywhere once you once you know the safety of it but also, you know, the sea is really needs a lot of understanding and respect because it's extremely dangerous. And yesterday, tragically, two men died 
very near the bay where we swim um, because they couldn't get in. It was a shelf of stones and they couldn't get in and the fishing boats were out trying to save them and just, you know, it's kind of deceptive, you know, that's why going in a group is good. Yes. That's why always testing a current, never getting out of your depth, standing in water so you can feel which way the pull is. Suddenly you're pulled miles and you're like, oh my God, the sea is quite a beast. It happened to me in Australia. There were no lifeguards or anybody watching the bay at the time because it was supposedly such a calm day. They didn't think anybody would go in. So we were lucky. Yeah. And I've, I've been very cautious about the sea ever since, I have to say. Yeah, a lot of people have those stories, which means they don't go in because they're quite scared of the sea. And we're also scared of what's underneath. You know, that Jaws couldn't have been worse PR for people being out of their depth in the sea. No. Because it's very hard to get that image of your little legs and some huge beast underneath because it's so, the sea is so huge and so, you know. Yeah. I, I remember being in the middle of, of the channel, not with, you know, not being able to see land either side. You know, we'd lost the white cliffs and we were heading for France and and the boat has to pull quite far away because there's a lot of diesel that goes into your face. So you need you need to be quite far away. And I, I suddenly was aware of the kind of infinity beneath me and I had a complete kind of panic attack and something brushed my leg and I started screaming. With, it was only a bit of wood, but I started screaming, but I didn't want to upset them on the boat. So I was screaming with my head under the water and then taking a breath and then screaming, ah! And it was such an epic effort of will to just keep going without panicking, just breathing, I, trying not to think of the jaws, you know, the hammerhead sharks and whatever else is. Mm, I just saw the other day, I saw an image of a person swimming on a little surfboard and just paddling along in the lovely water. And then the shadow of a great white underneath the board uh, taken from the air this was and you think oh no uh, it's like with beatrix potter jeremy fisher mm. his li little frog sitting on a lily pad with his little skinny little legs dangling down and there's a big pike with loads of teeth underneath <laughs> you know it's drilled into us from a young age that there's all sort of nasties in the water so a lot of people don't like to be in the sea out of their depth or indeed in a river it's funny how afraid we are of that. It's something to do with our, I'm sure it's to do with our subconscious mm. and the fears of that, but yeah. Uh, all right, despite that, despite the obvious fear <laughs> that we all feel for this thing, and it's a good fear to have because you need to have a respect for mm. sea because it can be, as you say, those men were only probably a few feet further out than you were yesterday mm. and they couldn't get back. It's a marvellous thing to see. I love to sit and watch it. I'm not keen on going in. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I won't be inviting you down to the coast then, unless you want to just sit on the beach. We could have done this on the beach, you see. It would have been too noisy. No, you could have been in. I could have been out. <laughs> yes, okay. But I wouldn't. that wouldn't have been allowed because I'm such a swimming bully. Uh, I'm the bossy, bossy, bossy woman of the sea. I remember in the school playground when I was living in London, people would say, please don't tell me you're going in sort of February, please don't tell me you're going to the Lido now. And I'd be like, yeah, I, I am going to the Lido now because it'll make me feel five times better. Mm. Also, it's an incredible hangover cure. <laughs> Fabulous. You know, you get in and you feel right back in the room. So <laughs> <laughs> I might need it then during our winter lockdown. Well, you could just get the cold shower on, couldn't you? I've got a pond at the end of the garden. Maybe I'll just <laughs> dunk my head in it. That'll do for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm going to put the C into your time capsule. 
There you are. Great. Right, so what's number two? Oh, gosh. So number two, um, can you have living things? Yes. Will they stay alive? <laughs> Absolutely. They'll be looked after in the best possible way. Well, I'm afraid we'd have to first get him back from the dead, but it would be my parrot, um, Fred, my African grey parrot <laughs> that I grew up with. Um, I'm sure it's the reason I'm an actor. I'm, I, I'm, I'm not an actor. I'm just a parrot who can mimic people and noises and voices. <laughs> um, so I asked for a hamster. I got a wild African grey parrot when I was 11. <laughs> and this poor bird had been like literally taken from the jungle, stuffed in a sack and found itself in, you know, some kind of hideous pet shop in Surrey. Mm. And it was totally wild. And it would make this terrible noise of just sort of ah, like sort of shrieking anytime anyone came in the room. And we were like, what? We just don't want this thing. It's too frightening. It doesn't <laughs> love us. What, what can we do? And I suppose every day I, I would go up towards the cage with a little, you know, handful of seeds and it would do this terrible shrieking noise. Mm. Um, it was just totally traumatized and um, started pulling its feathers out. And so eventually it started to take a seed from my hand, from my little sunflower seed through the bars. And then once, maybe probably about a month after it had come, we were watching Top of the Pops and it started making the most incredible jungle noises. So we gradually turned the telly down and it stopped. And then as we turned the telly up, because it liked the music, it started making the liquid, beautiful noises of a tropical jungle. Wow. So, so wow. So he had sort of relaxed. We decided it was a he. We called him Fred. Then the next stage was to let him out of the cage in the room, in the sitting room, because I was able to put my hand in and hold him and bring him out. And then he would sort of fly about, find a cupboard to sit on and quite like that. And then we'd have a little, little sing. Mm. Then he would go back in his cage. So we thought, well, should we, can we teach him to say anything? So we did, we did teach him to say, I can talk, can you fly? Which we had heard in a Lucille Ball show that we thought was very funny. But then he generally started to sort of mimic sounds around and the, the jungle noises got less and the family sounds got more. It was just a brilliant kind of futics end. You know, my dad, you couldn't quite make out the word. And then my mum, and then my dad, Barbara. And then stop it, you're bad. Because dad hated the parrot because it just used to bite him. Anyway, we decided we couldn't keep a bird in captivity. What are we going to do? So we put him outside in his cage so he could get his bearings. I don't know how my mum sort of it was some kind of animal whisperer. She, she'd always rescued little animals when she was younger. So we put him outside in his cage and he got his bearings, I suppose, like a pigeon would. Mm. And one day we just thought, we're going to have to let him go and see whether he comes back. So we opened the wall standing around the cage, opened the door and he flew up into an apple tree. We lived in a little, it was called Orchard Cottage and had a beautiful little orchard. And he sat up there singing and trilling and chatting and it was so wonderful. And then he did a little flyby hmm. and we thought, oh my God, and we were all thinking, is he going to go? What's going to happen to him? But he stayed up in the apple tree. So I climbed up the tree, picked him up at sort of as it got dark, put him back in his cage shut the door. He stayed in there for the night. 
And we got him used to the idea that his food was in the cage, but he could fly around. And gradually he got more and more, oh my God, he's flying in these huge arcs, but he always kind of stayed around made friend with a magpie, <laughs> did exactly the same chat as, used to copy the magpie's, you know, call, did all the birds. I mean, he was just amazing. Um, and then we would go on walks and he would come with us, flying above us. And when he got tired, he would just land on my mum's head. <laughs> and we would, and it was, we lived on a golf course and we would just walk past and, and just pretend nothing was happening. And the golfers would would walk past us and we'd be like, morning, morning. <laughs> and he'd be like, hello, hello. Oh, stop it, stop it, you're bad. And anyway, we moved up to Scotland and um, it was a bit tricky because everyone shoots birds up there and they're all shooting, hunting, fishing lot. And so we put a sign up saying, please don't shoot a pigeon with a red tail. It's our parrot because <laughs> he was grey. And so he... He got a bit lost the first few days up there. He used to fly to another house and knock on the window and say, Barbara, Barbara. People thought my dad was outside the door. Barbara, Barbara. And we'd go to his house, put him in the car, bring him home. And he got used to that. And then we, he would always come with us down to the sea. It's just wonderful. Flying around. And it was really the, the thing of growing up with a bird that made us laugh meant it virtually impossible to have a row because if anyone started rowing, he would just, oh, you stop it, you are going to start shouting. And that would make us all just piss ourselves with laughter. Wow. Um, and he also would, in the middle of the night, would, if people came to stay, he'd do this knocking and, and do calling. So people thought people were locked out. He was such a mischief monger. <laughs> so friends would come down and go, I think somebody's locked out. And, it would be, and then the parrot would just be sitting there looking at them. He was totally, but he could do any sound. He could do, you go to the dishwasher, pull it open. He'd go, ah. he did the sound of a sequence of sounds, which was my dad taking a drink from the dining room, which was the door, then the clinking of the glasses, then the, so we knew dad was just constantly going in and having a quick tipple from the sequence of noises which was so the, the you know the parrot rumbled dad's secret um tippling so he was uh, he was not favorite but he he just could do any sound he could do any voice and he just allowed there to be humor in the house because you just simply it was just so funny so much of the time he gauged the atmosphere so if someone was i, I remember you know if miss world was on he'd be like oh Hello, <laughs> because he just knew what the what the vibe was. And then a friend had another friend of my parents had an African grey that was totally traumatized because they were having a terrible breakup. This little bird had pulled all its feathers out, so it was just a head, a grey head, and this awful plucked chicken body. <laughs> and she thought she gives us him to Atsuki to us. We'll rehabilitate this parrot. So this poor parrot was put next to Fred in another cage. And Fred was like looking at like, what the hell is that <laughs> mess? And then the Suki would just do the most awful rows. And it was actually tragic. Tori, I said you baby. <laughs> it was, oh, it was just like horrific. It was like a window onto this couple's breakup. Oh, Lord. But eventually Suki grew all her feathers back. She had this white fluff and she grew one red feather 
anyway and they took her back and actually they did split up but um anyway the saddest part of it was that fred so i'd had him for 20 how many years 20 28 when he died i mean they can live we don't know how old they are you can't tell how old they are you can only tell if they're female if they lay an egg and he didn't so he used to like to sleep on his cage outside his cage on the top but outside Hmm. and one day a fox got him Uh and there was just a feather on the and I, i mean i think we all cried for about three weeks it was just the most he was just such an exceptional bird and i don't really know anyone who had a free-flying parrot that you know is is that a thing yes it is a thing you can do it but you have to have a bit of maybe a bit of land you have to train the bird to to love you first and then so he wants to come home you know because he <laughs> yes. did absolutely love us i mean he used to sit on on my shoulder and and his loving thing was to peel the mascara off my eyelashes, oh. like a little preening thing. Wow. Stuff his seeds in my hair. Anyway. Uh, what a beautiful bird. Well, I've fallen in love with Fred. I can understand why you want to put him into the time capsule. What an extraordinary bird. And uh, But what a marvellous thing you did, I think, because hmm. if you've got an animal, as you say, that arrives and it's completely traumatised by the awful thing of being snatched from a tree, put in a sack hmm. and basically transported on a boat and then put in a pet shop, Awful, awful thing to do. You know, I think Gerald Durrell has a lot to answer for. (laughs) Yes, that Victorian thing of just getting your menagerie and just because you can, you know, you can have an iguana and you can have... I can't bear any pets in any kind. I can't, couldn't even begin to go to a zoo or I just can't bear that smell of animals in glass tanks or you just go, this is is hideous. Mm. So, yeah... Yeah. Yes. Sometimes, I mean, I suppose they argue that they're doing a great job with uh, conservation, but it's a sad world that we need to conserve these extraordinary creatures. But I, I have to say, not only am I falling in love with Fred, but I really love your mum and dad. <laughs> <laughs> Sadly, my dad's no longer with us, but he lives on in these stories. And um, yeah, mum has always been a sort of animal. So a bird would fall out of a nest. Uh, you know, and so we constantly had little birds in boxes in the airing cupboard being fed with pipettes, and then she'd try and send them back into the world. So she had a kind of, she had quite a traumatic upbringing, and I think she just disappeared into the world of animals. She used to bunk off school and go into the woods where she had a pet duck, <laughs> and she would just walk around with this duck and then go home and pretend she'd been at school. So it's quite sad, really, but her whole... We had a goat as well that used to come down to the sea with us and was in love with my mum. And it would come into the sea and it would be buying at the, it would be buying at the, on the beach. And then as soon as it came in the water, its udders would hit the water. And it'd be like, oh, <laughs> <laughs> it was like the menagerie. The cat would come for a walk, the dogs. She was very amazing with her, her love of animals and kind of rescuing animals. Yeah. And then you've got your dad. <laughs> being shopped by the parrot for having a drink. I love the... And then, thank goodness the parrot didn't go in the car with your dad, otherwise it would have been swearing like a trooper. <laughs> yes! That's so right. It would have learned all of Derek and Clive's <laughs> lobster sketch. <laughs> that would have been brilliant. Oh, yeah. marvellous. OK, well, so we're going to put mm. Fred in there. By the sea. Good old Fred. Good old Fred. So on we go to number three. 
Okay, we're going to take a short break here for a game of Count the Adverts. You get five points for one, ten points for two, and nothing for silence. Very much like us. We'll be back in a moment. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome back. Please keep a note of your score, which will be added up at the end of this podcast. Right, let's find out what else Dune McKechn would like to put in a time capsule. Oh, gosh. Well, first I put my playlist. That's very dull, because it is interesting what you what you listen to, and it does take you back to music that, you know, just brings back times. But I, just thought, I don't know how to talk about that. <laughs> so I, I was going to put my accordion in, oh. my piano accordion. So I played the piano when I was younger and I got to sort of a very diligent little, little miss. I'm going to do my scales really properly. La, 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 you know, up and down. I quite like the sort of order of little tunes and I quite like the sort of being by myself playing the piano. It's quite, and then my brother, who's a year younger than me, one day just sat down aged 12 and I'd been playing, you know, and he just started scatting along to Duke Ellington that was playing. And my face just kind of fell and I stopped playing. So I was like, what the, how did that happen? Why? So he was just, he's a, he is now a musician and a producer and a successful all round musician. Yes. He can't read any music. But I missed the piano. And when I moved to, um, so post university, I moved to a council flat in Brixton in Angeltown, and I thought, actually, it's time to have an instrument. You know, I've got time now. I've got some time. Didn't have to work in those days, five quid a week, so I was just doing a bit of stand-up, you know. And I thought, I want to learn an instrument. So I got a piano accordion, and um, I went to Bruno Alodi in Lewisham and got this fantastically beautiful, looks like a sort of, you know, art deco cinema, Mm. and started learning. And it does take a long time to learn. It's a bit like, you know, tapping your head and rubbing your tummy. There's the buttons, the bellows, and the keyboard. So, but I had time. I was, I was just bimbling about doing a bit of stand-up. And I thought, oh, that's quite good for stand-up as well. So I started playing the accordion in my act. 
And I remember I had an, a, a gig at, do you remember the Earth Exchange? No, I don't. It was a kind of militant vegetarian <laughs> feminist collective. <laughs> it was just a brilliant place in North London. There's only about, it could only seat about like 15 people. But I had a residency there, of course, being militant. And I used to play kind of feminist Russian love songs. And it was all marvellous. And let's change the world. La, 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 singing along with my accordion. And um, I, I, I loved it. And I then went to Edinburgh with a skiffle band called the Screaming Abdabs. I used to sort of play with people's, I used to just come and join people's bands. Mm. And it was a nice way of having an instrument that wasn't the piano. And then sadly it got stolen and I couldn't afford to pay how much it had cost. So I bought a sort of cheap Chinese copy of an accordion um, and it just didn't have the sound. There was something so beautiful about that sound. It was very loud. Luckily, I had neighbours who quite liked it. <laughs> so I stopped. I, start, I kind of stopped playing it, really. But I used to hide it in the bed because we were burgled so many times. My friend played the sax and I, we'd have a little jam. So we'd both hide our instruments in the bed because we were burgled so all the time. Anyway, anyone could just walk up to our front door and basically burgle us. <laughs> then I went off to the Vienna Festival of Fools. It was a kind of clown festival in Vienna. And I, I was doing a stand-up act with my accordion and um, Chernobyl happened whilst we were there. And so we were told to stay in, stay in, don't go outside. Mm. It was the weirdest thing. So, well, well, how can we, please don't eat any fresh vegetables, just have tinned food. Don't go out in the rain. Don't open the windows. It was like, Christ, this is very weird. You know, yeah. who's measuring because we were quite close to the drift. So they kind of cancelled the festival and we were stuck in this hotel. It's very weird. And then I was touring with this clown called Daniel Rove and we were in a car with all his stuff in a little truck behind, being pulled behind. So we loaded everything up and we drove back to England. So did you manage to replace the accordion with a good one eventually? Well, no, it's, I then borrowed one. Then I didn't, yeah, so I wasn't really playing enough after that. The worst thing is, you know, showing off in Irish pubs that I can play the accordion is something I must never do. Because once they're being in a pub and then going, oh, should you play the accordion? I was like, yeah, yeah, I play the accordion, you know, drunk. And then just passing one over from the back of the bar to me and just the terror and everything, everyone waiting and it being quiet and just Les Dawson on kind of, you know, acid. <laughs> and just the, what, Playing the accordion badly is just so bad because it's so loud. So then I just stopped playing and stopped playing for ages then about 10 years ago, I, I got another one from Kilburn and I started up again, but never with the same amount of time. You know, that thing of, oh, just I'll, I'll do a bit. So it sits there looking beautiful. Mm. And it's, it's one of those things that I, I slightly beat myself up about. And occasionally I'll get it out and play along to some beautiful French you know, I, I can, I've got a minimal repertoire now. It still sounds amazing. So even one song played well sounds like I'm just queen of the world, but actually I can only play, I can only play that and about two more. Of course, that is the great thing about being a busker, is that everybody's walking mm. past you, so you only really need to know three. <laughs> yes, yes. I once was asked to play at a wedding and I had to keep playing the same song, like, like 15 times. So embarrassing. But yeah, yeah, the accordion will have to go in because it's one of those things that, you know, it's one day I'll learn some more songs, but it's it's just uh, something I love when I do put it on. It tends to be much better when I'm just doing it by myself. Mm. You could sneak inside, sit by the sea, have Fred groom your eyelashes 
and you could sit there and practice the accordion. I've just realised I'm a pirate. I never really <laughs> thought. I hadn't realised quite how much of a pirate I actually am, but I am. I'm a pirate. Well, if the fourth thing is a wooden leg, we'll know. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a bit more sobering and a bit sort of more... Well, I want to put cancer into the... Generally cancer. I mean, I know I could say COVID now because that's fucking awful. But yeah, there was a, there was a time when my dad got cancer, my my ex husband's dad got cancer, and my son got cancer all at the same time. And my son was nine, and my dad was seventy three, and Tony's dad was sixty eight. So you know, the awful thing is, you know, we lost both the dads, and luckily my son lived and made it made through so he's in remission so it was the terrible thing of driving into the Marsden and my dad going one way and then my son going the other way and it was seeing the children that I just thought this is so it just made me so kind of furious that that it was allowed that the children turn left and you know yes it's terrible yes people get cancer when you're older you think okay well I've had some sort of a life you know, my dad has had a wonderful life. He's, he was t- way too young to die. Mm. But there was something just absolutely abhorrent about seeing a small child get out of a car and turn left. So, you know, we, we went through a sort of real two-year war zone where I didn't know how to speak to parents who were going to take their children home for the because uh, there was nothing more the hospital could do. So suddenly you're in a club, you just don't know how to behave in. Mm. And the knock-on effects are, I think if you're strong in your marriage or partnership, maybe you're going to make it through. But the likelihood is you're not, because I think it's something like 90% of couples break up. So sadly, we did break up. And, and, and it's so still everywhere in all our lives, isn't it? Mm. it, it with people that we know, with, and we're so lucky if the finger hasn't pointed at us, I still sort of every day go, well, it's great because at least I, and it sounds awful, but at least I haven't got cancer. I know it's a dreadful thing to say, but because I've been right down in sort of in the war zone of a cancer ward, I just would love it to be eradicated. And I don't, I'm, I'm sorry to drag everything down, but I couldn't think of, I have got another list. No, no, it's perfectly fine. I, I have to say you have had that absolutely personal experience with it as well, which is, must have been awful. I mean, I've, I've not known my own children, fortunately, and I touch all sorts of wood here to be ill, to be seriously ill, and they've made it right through to almost middle age. And yet I've known a grandchild fall very ill. And I, I, I couldn't bear it. I really couldn't bear it. I, I was bursting out of my skin with the, the horror of it. And in fact, they had to hide almost everything from me. Mm. I was told very little until after it was over because I just couldn't cope. So, yes, I absolutely feel for you. Two years of hell, oh. that must have been. Yes, and then you've got the kind of the post-traumatic sort of the, the rehabilitation of having seen so much pain in such a short period of time, like known children who didn't make it, like quite a few kids who didn't make it. It was just, it was just so hard to take on board. Of what kind of like just you can un- understand people just deciding they didn't want to be Christians anymore, or that didn't, or becoming nihilists, or kind of 
because you just go, well, well, what, who's in charge here? What the hell? How did this happen? It came from nowhere. We don't know why it happened. You know, how do you know why a kid's got cancer? Is it because he was on his computer too much or, you know, we lived under some pylons and people were giving us all sorts of nonsense, but it takes a long time to, to get back to a, a sense that the sword of Damocles isn't always hanging above your head and is going to suddenly strike. Mm. I think that's the thing when people have had some kind of big thing in their lives. I became always ready for some terrible other bit of news to just about to arrive. Yes. I was always, it was like catastrophe. It was like waiting for more bad news. And that's really gone now. I mean, I still feel over the moon that, that everyone's alive in the family, but I feel also sort of that there's such a sliding scale of, you know, who's had it worse. So someone's loft conversion is someone else's childhood. That I remember sitting on a train and a woman just going on and on and on about the stress of her loft conversion. <laughs> and I was sitting there getting, and you know, but I was silently boiling, but I knew I had the red card at the end of the conversation to go, here's my red card. And I used to kind of get it out and go, yeah, well, my son's in a cancel. You know what I mean? It was terrible. It was like a sort of, I, I, I just judged everyone's, problems and stresses yes because i th- i thought you haven't got a clue you don't know you're born you know that kind of thing and you just realize that louis didn't die so we're in that amazing thing of we we've got a child who lived and so the sliding scale of, of people's pain and trauma is is immense so in fact someone's love conversion is as bad for them mm. oh my god i just like my hair's falling out i mean they were there all day there was brick dust everywhere i couldn't put my sofa up no, I was like, and, and you just want to punch people in the face, but there we are. <laughs> yes. I think I'm over that now. I'm over punching people in the face. I was once evicted out of um, Waitrose. That was quite funny for someone who tutted behind me in the queue. <laughs> and I, I just, I lost it. I was on my way back to the cancer ward. And I went, no, 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 go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead, you know, you must you must go and buy your, your chicken gel frazy and your, you know, because my son's in a fucking cancer ward like that completely screaming at an old man and i got i got evicted by security there we are mm. so you know <laughs> well but it's a lesson for us all i often sometimes when i see people and i think so far oh, for goodness sake cheer up mate or all right it's, it's not that important i look at people and i think actually what is it about their life that makes that that important or that annoying or makes them that miserable and you don't know what it is. Yeah. You have no idea what it is. No. I mean, if you say to them, cheer up, mate, I absolutely resist saying that to anybody now because I'm right. sure they'll come back to me, well, I would cheer up had my wife not just died this morning. Yes. <laughs> yes, you and all the builders on the scaffoldings, the cheer up thing was just one of the most annoying things that's ever been. Smile, love. Can you raise a smile? Luckily, those days are gone because I'm invisible now. So that's great. That's good. <laughs> now I'm in the menopause. I, I, that doesn't happen. I slightly miss it as well. No, I don't miss it at all. No. 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 Joe Brandon, I had this thing of like, what do you do? And we were going to carry water pistols around. So if you got like cat called on the street, you just shoot someone like with water. <laughs> you know, but like bazooka guns, but, but just suddenly it would be great, wouldn't it? It would. And they'd have no grounds for objecting at all. Mm, harass me. I'm, I can soak you with my super bazooka. Ah, <laughs> oh, the heady days of being cat called. 
<laughs> I don't believe that. <laughs> well, definitely, definitely, you know, that gets buried deep in the ground, cancer. Yes, but I'm a lucky one. I, you know, that's the amazing thing. I'm one of the lucky ones. And, and the thing is, I suppose when you go down into that very dark place, and I did, I did actually two years later create a show, a one-woman show out of it because I wanted people to know what he'd been through. So I just literally asked for his notes and they wouldn't give it because it's an insurance thing. They don't want to give you your notes because in case you, because so many parents want to sue or, you know, it's terribly sad, but they want to f- blame someone else for, for a death. But by gradually eroding them and, you know, and having known a lot of the nurses and, and just said, look, I just want to praise you. I want to show everybody what happened in this, in this space. Mm. And it was great for Louis as well, my son, because he, he came up to Edinburgh. I did it at Edinburgh and he came up for three days. And I remember getting him on stage for, a, for the bow at the end. And of course, then people just absolutely went to pieces mm. because there he was alive, you know, the actual living boy. Yeah. So that was, a, that was an amazing um, experience. And I think it was good for him as well to see it somehow seen from my point of view, our point of view as parents and also his siblings and the nurses, because he's just in this hell of just trying to deal with the, the, the actual, you know, all the things that happened. So um, that was very, I'm sure that helped. I'm sure that's not just cathartic, but was good for people to see as well, to feel grateful and, you know, all those things. Yes, and also compare with their own experience. With their love conversions, yeah. yeah. And their love conversions are terrible. Don't, don't. <laughs> I'm having some tarmac laid. You wouldn't, I, let's not go into it. No, tell me about the no, tarmac no, no. You, and how you think, ruined your day. You think you've got fucking problems. <laughs> uh, oh. Brilliant. Okay, so we've got one more thing to find to put into the time capsule. Well, I would like to put in my diaries. I've kept a diary since I was a, a wee one. I can't find all my younger diaries because they're probably burnt or in an attic. Or, But I've got a lot of diaries. So it's... um. You know, when I started writing it, it was things like had a duck egg for breakfast and then drawing pictures of my school uniform. It was all very like trying to make sense of the world. This is what I ate. This is what I wore. And this is what happened today. Very no emotions, just two bits of bacon, one bit of toast and a walk with the dog. And then I put on my Laura Ashley skirt and then, you know, blah, blah, blah. Very I think it's really interesting why people, why some people write and some people don't. I don't know why. I think I was always the girl slightly on the edge of the playground. I never quite felt that I fitted into a group. So writing was a kind of solace of um, just making sense of, of the sort of chaos and the f- scariness. And then suddenly being in Scotland, being a little posh girl in uh, the middle of a very rough state school with everybody with very strong accents and then obviously having to hide in the toilets and then obviously adopt a Scottish accent to stay alive. And then luckily an English teacher persuading me to join the drama group so that I could make people laugh was, was marvellous. But those diaries are really interesting. Again, they're not super emotional. They're very, and then we did this play and then I saw Sandy and then, you know, and as it gets older, it, it, it's more, I'll only write when I'm in pain. Like I'll only write when things are shit uh-huh. as opposed to I won't write when things are good. 
So I didn't really write that much at uni because I was busy writing my stand-up there. And then I was doing stand-up through the 80s. And then the diaries seemed to start up probably all around relationships. You know, is that, is that the sort of, you know, the whole, the 20s, you know, who you're with, who you're not with, is this the man you're going to marry or he's dumped me? And so it became just brilliant to look back on diaries of being in Brixton when I arrived there. It was during the riots and I was doing stand-up. I was doing very sort of political feminist stand-up mm. that always was to do with a march. So we'd be marching for the David Alton Bill and then we'd go and do the old white horse or then I'd end up at the comedy store and be introduced as, you know, by Clive Anderson as, well, I mean, you know, see if you like her, you know, that kind of patronising. <laughs> a woman trying to be funny. I, yeah, I, well, you know, see if you like her. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite filthy. Um, and then I stopped writing. It was too busy. I had two kids. I was trying to perform. I didn't, I wasn't writing. And it was an actress called Angela Thorne, who I was in Midsummer Night's Dream with at the Almeida. Mm. And she just said, oh my God, you've, you've got to write this down. Your life is so mad. I was trying to go on tour with a two-year-old and a one-year-old. And it was just kind of the madness of what we do as performers to try and keep going. So she got me writing again, which was really, really good. And I think it's helped me write other stuff. You know, I don't, I don't sit and write like comedy that's been created has tended to be done through impro and been filmed. So all day to day, smack, on the hour, most of it is in a room with a camera. Not always, you a lot of just pissing around first and writing stuff down and, you know, ideas. And then the actual meat of it being filmed and then distilled down was the way that Armando taught us such a great way to work. Still does to this day, I think. Yes, yeah. So someone's got to transcribe sort of hours of crap and to find the nuggets of, of gold. But um, I still write a diary, but I don't write it. I probably check in with it every couple of weeks and it tends to be when things aren't great. Like if everything's just absolutely in the groove, plain sailing, I don't sit and do what I did when I was 12. I had a fried egg, put my trousers on, you know, took the dog for a walk, all that. It's just, this is cuntish, you know, this is what I write during the COVID. This is cuntish. <laughs> just my writing changed and sort of teardrops on it as I'm trying to homeschool my teenager and living on universal credit um and actually what I tend to do a year on is look back at so say New Year's Eve this New Year's Eve I'll read last year even if I haven't written that much it's absolutely fascinating what I've forgotten and how similar the refrains are like have I learned nothing will I never change will I never stop smoking why don't I realize that hangovers aren't a good idea during middle age anyway all that stuff it's really interesting to think oh I've really I really cracked this life thing, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm swimming in the morning and, uh, you know, <laughs> actually there's a lot of similar things to when I was quite younger, that we are, we are who we are, aren't we? And we have our little foibles and patterns and yes, we can change, but we often don't change that radically. No, my diaries are just factual. Are they? I mean, I've always written it down. I, I, I wonder now, the last few years, of course, all my diaries have been on computers, so I, I wonder... I can still go back on the computer and look at the diary. So all it is, is I did this, I did this, I'm doing this, this at this time, this at this time, pick up this from this place. But actually, for me, they act as a really strong reminder of all those things. I can remember those things. Are they diaries of just what you you did? Or do you write them as, this is 
sorry, what's ahead or what what you've done? No, I will go back and fill things in, for example. Mm. If I think, oh, that was fun, I'll write Walk with the Grandkids in the Woods. Yeah. And then I can, even though maybe a couple of years back, I can remember, I remember that's we went to those woods and that was when he said that. I think I have a similar memory to, strangely enough, to two of my grandchildren have this extraordinary memory of things where they will suddenly mm. quote back at you things that you've said to them three years before. So you have to be very careful what you say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's brilliant. That's great. So do you, do you look over them? Do you, do you scan them at all to sort of... Well, just recently I went back. Uh, I had a terrible cold, but I thought it might be COVID. So I isolated myself until I could get a test and sat in a room. And that room had the bookshelf with all my diaries on it. And I started to just browse through them. And strangely enough, what I did was I started to add up the number of television adverts that I'd been in. (laughs) Isn't that weird? How many? How many? Well, I was about to do a television advert uh, and I was worried that I wasn't going to get well enough in time. Uh, And so I started going through them going, oh, one, two, three, four. And you know what, Dune? I did over a hundred. A hundred television adverts and you get the prize for the most amount of adverts mm. and also for calling them television adverts. Just the way you say that is like the stereophonic stereogram. You know, it's a very somehow a very old-fashioned way of talking about the telly. I love it. A <laughs> hundred. Over a hundred, Oh, yes. my God. Can you not list them all and then write a little anecdote about each one and, and publish that as a book? That's a very good idea. I might well do. I'll go back and look at the diaries because they do say Barclays ad, Nat West ad. Yeah. You know. And there will be some hilarious story attached to a lot of them, I bet. Oh, nearly all of them. I did one advert, one television advert for Klinemann toothpaste, and I had a hand model. It was a hand model brushing my teeth. <laughs> so can you imagine someone else trying to brush your teeth? Because my hands were just old farm hands with bitten nails. I thought it was like this kind of ah, brushing. And then I had this slightly kind of, some voice, probably yours, asked, you're a smoker. Don't you find your teeth get stained? And I'm like, no. What, not even after tea or coffee? No. <laughs> That's because she uses Klinemann toothpaste. And then the hand model comes in. Oh, and I had to keep spitting into a spittoon. There's a story, and that's just one ad. There we are, you see. Yeah. I'm going to go back and have another look. (laughs) I would read that book, and I would put that in anyone's stocking, my 100 adverts. I will dedicate it to you. (laughs) (laughs) I want a little bit of money as well, because as I mentioned before, I am on Universal Credit because it is a pandemic and there is no work. No, no. I've got the recordings of this, and I'm going to destroy them. We never had this conversation. You can't because it's your podcast and if it doesn't go out i'll never know damn damn foisted again okay ten percent two percent's fine i'm not greedy yeah all right well dune it's been well it's been fantastic talking to you really lovely i've loved it because i was dreading it as i was swimming in the cold sea thinking oh i don't know what i'm gonna talk about since i've lost all my notes but of course it's easiest thing to talk about is oneself isn't it Yak, yak, For some yak. people, for some people, for you, uh, you know, yeah, it was brilliant. I'll <laughs> uh, do next time. We should be sitting on the beach. We will, Michael. I'm going to bring a parrot. Um, only if it's free flying. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Bless you. Okay. You have been listening to my time capsule with me, Mike Fenton Stevens, and my guest, Dune McKechnie. 
You can listen to this episode again and all other episodes by subscribing to this podcast on whichever podcast provider you personally prefer. For example, Apple, Spotify, Acast or Castbox. I'm sure you know what to do. If you want more information about past and future episodes, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. Just search My Time Capsule. If you have the time, we'd love it if you would rate the podcast and leave a small review. Thanks. This podcast was produced by John Fenton Stevens and the music is by Pass the Peas Music. It was a cast-off production. So, it's time for the final score in today's game of Count the Adverts. Drum roll, please. <laughs> We're not really playing this game, you know. <laughs> uh, sorry, made myself laugh. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.